0: This is not becoming a true crime podcast five episodes in, but
1: when we <laughs> a dramatic are... change of direction, if we're like the first four not working, we gotta change <laughs> it up. We're going back to Murder with Friends. <laughs> so, if you guessed from that theme music, we are going to be throwing it back to Murder with Friends today. Murder with Friends, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, was a show that I hosted and co-created some years back, and it was a talk show where two friends get together and talk about the darker sides of history, and we would explore true crime, um, we would explore the macabre, the mysterious, the disturbing, and it was one of my favorite things that I've ever done, and unfortunately, Lizzie never got to come on the show, which always felt... Wrong. It didn't feel right that we ended the show and you were never able to discuss a case that you followed because it is not as though you are not interested in true crime. And it's definitely not as though we don't watch a lot of true crime stuff in our household or that we don't listen to true crime podcasts around the house. We definitely do. So all that being said, today, this is... um, This is your Murder with Friends episode. Lizzie, welcome to Murder with Friends on Under Our Roof. Yes,
0: you are listening to Under Our Roof. This is not becoming a true crime podcast five episodes in. But
1: when we- (laughs) dramatic change of direction. If we were like the first four not working, we got to (laughs) change it up. We're going back to Murder with Friends.
0: But when we first started talking about doing this podcast before we even- actually started recording, we said, wouldn't it be fun if one of the episodes was a revival of Murder with Friends? In, in particular, because like Grace said, I never went on the actual show when it was on. Um, and if this goes well, then we could do more of these every now and then. Again, it's not going to become a true crime podcast. But
1: we are a couple that pays attention to true crime. We watch all the same series that you do. If you're also into true crime, we've probably been listening to the same podcast. So exactly. it's not outside of the realm of possibility that down the line, it would be something we would explore again on the show. But for now... I want to know, Lizzie, what is a case that you followed? What are we going to be talking about today on Murder with Friends Under Our Roof Edition? (laughs) The case of
0: the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. That is a case that I think for a few factors that I'll go into just captured my attention at a young age. Um, I'm a bit younger than Natalie would be, but we're around the same age. And I just really, it was one of the first cases I remember following as a kid. I mean, I was 14 when she disappeared. I actually, I actually was 13. And When I, did this happen? Okay, yeah. I'm going to go into all that. A very brief background to quickly remind anyone or bring you up to speed if you don't know this case. This was the May 2005 disappearance of an 18 year old woman named natalie holloway in aruba she was on a school trip and she missed her flight home and has not been found to this
2: day in aruba the search for new
3: details in the case of natalie holloway natalie holloway's mother
2: alabama teenager natalie holloway
3: in this story the media came in and they stayed
0: in america where i grew up this was huge news and i want to talk about that phenomenon as well missing white woman syndrome and all of the coverage at the time. Um, But I'm just curious, from your perspective, being in Belgium, Mm -hmm. did you know about this case? Did it make big news over there? And I just wanted to know.
1: Yeah. So wait, so she was 18 at the time of her disappearance, and you were 12? I was 13, but I turned 14 the month after she disappeared. So I was basically 14. That's interesting, because I feel like I didn't really hear about her case very much at all really until later until i remember when van der sloot was apprehended um he was apprehended several times yeah, as as we'll go but into but i remember seeing his face on tabloids and okay. h- as it related to natalie Hollow- mm-hmm. Ho- holloway's face so you know you would see it on a tabloid at the checkout line and i would see her face i would see his face but that probably wasn't until i was like 16 or mm-hmm. so now i don't know if that was because Honestly, like I was just watching MTV and <laughs> I wasn't really tuned in to any news. I was really busy mm-hmm. going through my sexual awakening and worrying about my own little problems. Um, but I I wasn't really checked in. Yeah, I'm just trying to think I definitely was interested in true crime because I know I tr- traumatized my 10th grade class with <laughs> a really dark uh presentation on the Zodiac <laughs> killer. So I know that I talked about mm-hmm. True crime, and I know that that was something that I was interested in, but I think this case um, just didn't really get picked up in my circles. But mm-hmm. it was where you were in Raleigh. Oh,
0: absolutely, yeah. In the U.S., I remember this case being everywhere, and we're going to go into more of the detail of the timeline. But just for reference of why I picked this case and why it's always stuck with me, is I was going into high school. That fall of 2005 and Natalie had just graduated high school and this was her school trip that she was going on or her senior trip. And that very summer, about two months after she went to Aruba, I went on a trip with my best friend to the Bahamas. Mm. And we did have her parents there. It wasn't like Natalie's trip where parents weren't there and we were a lot younger. We were only 14, but something about that also made it really stick in my mind. Like this young woman had like gone to the Caribbean and never come home. And I was going for the first time ever to the Caribbean and also for the first time ever on a trip like that without my parents. And so it just like really stuck with me. And I remember getting really spooked on the trip a couple of times. Like one time we were, my friend and I were like riding a golf cart around the island. We went to like a small island in the Bahamas and something jumped out and it like in the road and it terrified me. I was kind of Mm -hmm. on edge. It was weird. Not like I thought there was this Caribbean killer like running around different islands in the Caribbean. Aruba is not anywhere near the Bahamas also. But it really stuck with me. And I think in general cases where the person has never been found, also just for some reason, I mean, I think for an obvious reason, it's just sort of the mystery. Yeah, it's mysterious and perplexing. There's a possibility too, that from a young age, cases like this stuck with me because One of my grandparents was lost at sea and never has been found um, on a sailing trip. And that from a young age, I remember thinking like, well, maybe he's like on an island. Mm. This was when I was really little that I would think that, like maybe he is just like still alive somehow because they never found his body. And so I think like that idea like captured my mind as a child since it was obviously so personal. But let's get into the timeline of the case. So this is May 2005. Um, Natalie is an 18-year-old from Mountain Brook, Alabama. She was planning to go to the University of Alabama in the fall of 2005 um, with a full scholarship, and she planned to pursue nursing there. Um, I don't know a lot else about Natalie, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, one interesting thing about the case is that I've heard is that as soon as everyone came home, her parents really wanted everyone to, like, delete any photos they had of Natalie from the trip just because they were already worried about her being portrayed as this party girl. That definitely happened. Yeah. So I think that even though this case was so explosive, the actual details about who Natalie was, there it's hard to find a whole yeah. lot. But we know that she was planning on going to college and she was interested in nursing and from
1: Alabama, wanted to stay in Alabama for college. I will say that I've recognized that as well with this case, that who Natalie... Was is pretty broad when described. Just she was a friend, she was a daughter, she was looking forward to a long life. Um, she had goals and aspirations, but it's pretty broad. And I actually think that that is totally fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, she was only 18. I almost
1: want to like let's normalize that. Yeah, when it comes to speaking of true crime, just respecting the wishes of the family about how they want their loved one to be remembered and honored. Mm -hmm. And we're clearly getting signals from the Holloway family of like, this is the information that we're going to provide to you about our daughter. And we're respectfully asking that you not dig any further. Yeah, They're okay with people scrutinizing the case and wanting justice for Natalie and trying to figure out specifically what happened to her. I know before this case reached its conclusion, Mm -hmm. they were always, they were like, we want to keep Natalie's name in your minds because we want to know what happened to her. We want to put pressure on the authorities to get justice. That's all good and well, but her personal life, that we don't need you guys to be scrutinizing that. People couldn't get enough of the
2: Natalie Holloway story. Beth Holloway seems to realize that the only way she's going to keep the pressure on and maybe find her daughter is to just keep talking. Mike, and sit and talk. I mean, that's all you could do. Beth, thanks for being with us again. Seven hits in the morning or something like that. Beth, it's Diane. Yes, hi, Diane. Good morning. Seven hits at night, three hours later, up, do it again, up, do it again, up, do it again. The Natalie Holloway story just dominated. It was a sensation.
0: So to do the timeline, um, she graduated towards the end of May 2005, and then she went on a senior trip um, to Aruba. a five-day trip. And you and I both went on senior trips after we graduated, so I think that's pretty common. They went to Aruba, and a few days into the trip, um, they were all at a club called Carlos and Charlie's. And around 1 a.m. on that day, which was May 30th, 2005, is the last time that Natalie is seen alive or seen at all. Uh, She was at Carlos and Charlie's. Around 1 a.m., she is seen leaving, getting into a cab outside the club. And that is the last time that Natalie has been seen. There's no... Video footage, no security tapes of her anywhere else on the island after that point. That is the last sighting by some of her friends who are also at the club. They see her get in a cab with three men, and that was kind of disputed at the beginning, but it seems like people mostly agree now. She got in the cab with three men, and those three men were Joran Vandersloot, Mm -hmm. who is the name at the center of this case, as we'll discuss, and then two brothers who were Joran's good friends, uh, Deepak and Satish Kalpo, and they all ran around the island together going to clubs. And Aruba's small. Yeah. I think
1: we should talk about when we say like ran around the island doing things together, Aruba is very small.
0: And that's what kind of fascinates me about this case too and has from the beginning, that it's an island. Mm -hmm. It's very small. So to lose someone in this relatively tiny landmass is fascinating. I'm
1: honestly going to look up the square mileage of Aruba right now as you – continue giving us this timeline
0: i think it's one of the smaller caribbean islands so she leaves around 1 a.m and that's really the end of the case timeline in terms of natalie being involved okay aruba is
1: 69 and a half square miles wow yeah that's that is tiny it is tiny so let me let me let me just contrast that with let's just do california in square miles Okay, there you go. So Aruba is 69 and a half square miles, and the state of California is 163,000 square miles, effectively. It's closer to 164,000 square miles. Yeah.
0: So it is a small area for someone to disappear from. She
1: got the call and she knew Natalie was in trouble.
0: Snap, you know, it's instant.
1: Something is terribly wrong. I had to get to Aruba now. Beth immediately set off to get on a plane to Aruba.
0: Natalie's missing. She misses her flight home. She was supposed to leave the next day from the trip, so she goes missing on the last night of the trip. Her mom and stepdad and some of their friends immediately fly on a private jet that one of their friends had to Aruba to start the search, Mm -hmm. and the police go into Natalie's hotel room, and they find her passport and her packed bags because she would have been getting ready to leave to go home the next day. Mm Like I said, Natalie has never been found. There's been a lot of back and forth since that time that I can only imagine would be so heart-wrenching to her family and the people who knew her. Um, And a lot has happened since in terms of suspects, but really the main suspect is Yorin. And so what I really want to dig into is this whiplash that's really gone on since she disappeared. Yorin and the Deepak brothers have all been arrested and released several times, and every time they were released, it was because there was not enough evidence, and that's been kind of the ongoing issue in this case is there is no physical evidence. Well,
1: I I was going to say, I think one of the first things that you hear about, whether it is from a mystery Show if you're watching Columbo or Murder She Wrote or whatever, or you're getting into true crime, it is really hard to do anything if you do not have a body. Exactly.
0: And I think another, I think it's worth talking about the suspicion on the part of a lot of people that the reason there's no physical evidence in this case is because the investigation into Joran Vandersloot
1: did not happen as quickly or as thoroughly as it should have. Well, can you tell us about the investigation? Yeah. So her family flies over to Aruba that very next day. She's not on her flight. Police go to her hotel room. They find her bags packed. Her passport is there. She is, by all accounts, disappeared. Where do investigators go from there?
0: A full search of the island doesn't happen immediately. Middle of the first week of June, I think it's June 4th, June 6th. Then a full search of the island begins and the waters surrounding the island. And actually the government gave almost every civilian the day off of work to just get out of their jobs and search the island, go physically searching through brush and searching through. A lot of the center of the island is empty space. Mm -hmm. Like The businesses are flanking the coast around the edges of the island. In the middle, there isn't a lot of development there. So searching through that searching by boat um, in the waters around, searching coves and beaches. And nothing, nothing's found. There's flyers. There's some suspicion at the beginning that this is a young woman who was partying and didn't want to come home or was too drunk to realize that she had mm-hmm. missed her flight and was going to turn up. And I think that was kind of a feeling. The state of panic and emergency for the government of Aruba and for the police there and everything seemed to set in a little bit delayed, whereas I'm sure the state of panic was immediate for her family. Once I saw him, I was like, we've got it, let's go. It's time to go to the police now. We finally get two Aruban police officials to accompany us to the Vandersloat home. I remember the police turning on their sirens. The gray Honda that Natalie was last seen getting into is parked outside the Vandersloot residence. And Deepak Kalpo and Yaron Vandersloat are standing out in the gravel driveway.
2: Deepak Kalpo was a friend of Joran's. He and his brother Satish were actually seen leaving with Joran and Natalie that night. In fact, it was their car that they all left in. I I don't know whether I have a take on did they botch this investigation. I know that
0: Joran's family is very powerful and wealthy in the Netherlands, and Aruba is a territory of the Netherlands. So, I think his family was diplomats from the Netherlands
1: in Aruba. I watched a special about the case once that was just saying, I mean, there's kind of like with JonBenet Ramsey, there's so many specials about this case Mm -hmm. that are sort of vetting their own theory. A lot of times there will be some sort of an agenda behind it. And I do remember watching a special at one point in time that was very much sort of airing out the theory that with Joran van der Sloot and his family's connections, the sort of level of, I guess, cover-up that could have been afoot Mm -hmm. if a kid who was as well networked as a Vandersloot were to get in trouble like this. And that's kind of what they were exploring. Is that something that you've read about before that you've heard about? Definitely. There's
0: been allegations of everything that his dad actually paid off people to cover this up down to a bit less um, malicious where it's more Well, they didn't investigate him as thoroughly because the thought was this is a girl that partied too hard on her school break and didn't come home because she's strung out somewhere Mm -hmm. or she is just wants to escape and didn't, you know, is rebelling and didn't catch her flight on purpose. And so things like one of the Deepak brothers had a car that they all used. I don't think that car was tested for any kind of evidence, at least not until
1: later. Um... Yorin's home was not searched. Okay, so she goes missing in May. Mm -hmm. And in June, we see a full search of the island.
0: Yes, and Yorin and the Deepak brothers are questioned. Okay. And they're arrested and then released and arrested and released several times over the next couple of years because there will be evidence linking them and there will be pressure from outside sources that this must be the guy. And the thing to remember, too, is... This investigation looks really different than I think how it would in the US, not to say the way things here are done perfectly, but you don't typically see arrests and releases and then re-arrests and releases again. I mean, sometimes, but it's just not nearly as common as it seems like it is there where people will be arrested and then kind of let go because they don't have enough evidence. And then there's pressure. Oh, no, I think they did it. And they'll arrest them again. Like, that wouldn't really happen here. But Aruba doesn't have the same mm-hmm. laws that we that do. That plays out a
1: lot like a soap opera.
0: Yeah, Like It's totally. the sort
1: of thing that you'd see on, like, Pretty Little Liars, where someone's, right. like, arrested. And then they're they're released. And yeah. then they're arrested again. And then there's new evidence. But what was some of the evidence that was brought against Joran Van Der Sloot? There really isn't
0: physical evidence at all against Joran Vandersloot.
1: So we just did a quick Google search because we both kind of couldn't believe, even though Lizzie has been researching this case in preparation for this episode for some time, that there really wasn't any physical evidence. And please do your own research, but we... (laughs) We can't seem to find any physical evidence linking and Vandersloot um or the two brothers to Natalie Holloway at all. So if that wasn't how he was getting arrested and why he was a person of interest in this case, how were police getting their interest in him? I mean, I guess he was the last person that she was seen with, and I That's mean and he feels suspicious yeah. just by just by <laughs> taking a little a little look at him you're yeah. like this is a i feel like one of those police detectives where i'm like this is the guy
0: right and we'll get to where Joran van is today because some things have happened since the natalie case we'll they certainly about. have yeah he multiple witnesses saw her with him that night so that's who police wanted to talk to that's where the investigation started and kind of has ended is that they wanted to know what Joran knows and when did he see her and mm-hmm. his story changed a lot So that's why the focus has remained on him. He has not been able to keep a straight story with this case. So he started out by saying that, yes, uh, she had gone with him from the club. They had hung out. She wanted to see the ocean, something like that. And then he dropped her back at her hotel. That's what he said. He said, "Um, I dropped her. She seemed really drunk, but she said she didn't need help. And um, as I was driving away, oh, I, I saw someone in a dark shirt approaching her, but I didn't question it. So he kind of okay. tries to develop this vague boogeyman, like, oh,
1: someone... He wants to deflect.
0: Yeah, he, yeah. he wants to kind of say, like, um, I don't know what to say. Like, mm-hmm. I dropped off this drunk girl in the night. Maybe shouldn't have done that, but someone, you know, I, I didn't have anything to do with it.
1: Is this just
3: cool confidence or the telltale character of a killer? His denials in the Holloway case were laced with lies that he explained when I first interviewed him. Why would you lie if you had nothing to hide about Natalie Holloway? I lied because, uh, yeah, I was scared. I had a girlfriend at the time. I didn't want my dad to think bad of me. I didn't want my friends to think bad of me. Why not just tell them the truth? Why didn't you? I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want anyone to know I left her at the beach. A lot of thought went into this fake story. Do you understand why that would be troubling to people?
2: Uh, There wasn't actually
3: a lot of thought in it at all. It was uh, basically making it up as come along. An unusual instinct to make up a story instead of assisting in the search for young natalie
0: pretty quickly he ends up changing his story these are both his statements around the time um, of the disappearance and then as we'll get into as years pass he has totally different stories but his second version of the story is oh he he felt guilty so he didn't want to say the real thing at first but what actually happened is that they were on the beach together And uh, she wanted to be left alone on the beach. So he, he felt bad and he regrets it, but he left her on the beach. And that's the last time he saw her was on the beach. Okay. So kind of these two stories that aren't the same, but both involve certain elements about like they went to the beach, they hung out, she was really drunk.
1: Yeah, if I'm hearing this story... I'm picking up on the things that are remaining the same yeah, and the beach as a central location. Again, as a reminder, Aruba is so small. So if we're getting the location, of like we're on the beach, we're at the water's edge, that, if I'm an investigator, gives me a directive of like, okay, let's start looking at these beaches. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But as years pass, the stories get a lot wilder. So he, they can't charge him. They don't have any evidence. He claims that... It's heartbreaking for I know, the family. Yeah. He says, I, I don't know what happened to her. Um, And years pass, and there's no justice for Natalie, but she really remained on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. I know I was someone who, like, every six months, I would seriously Google, like, what? Anything? Mm-hmm. Any news, Natalie Holloway? Like, Natalie Holloway 2007. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that to see if there's anything... And there just never would be. There'd be a lot of blogs, a lot of theories, but still no evidence, still no confession or or no smoking gun. So in 2008, Joran van der Sloot is caught on an uh, undercover video in a sting operation trying to get him to confess. So there's this guy who's sort of this, he's working to try to get Joran to confess, but he's posing as kind of this cool like drug dealer type guy. Who's he working for? A Netherlands news program. Okay. Yeah, because the this was a huge story in the Netherlands because uh, because Joran is from the Netherlands, mm-hmm. he was born there. This guy who's working for a Netherlands news station, he helps catch Joran on undercover video, and they're they're talking, and the guy tries to say like, "Hey, whatever happened to that girl?" Kind of just getting trying to get him to confess or say something, mm-hmm. and so Joran says, "Oh yeah, yeah, I was there when she died, actually." And so that's a huge bombshell. He says that they had sex on the beach and that um, during it, she had a seizure and died and that he panicked and got a friend to help him go out on a boat and dump her body in the ocean.
3: Speaking in Dutch, Joran Van der admits knowing what happened to Natalie Holloway, all caught on hidden camera by Dutch crime reporter Peter De Vries. He knows exactly what happened in every detail. He knows where her body wound up
2: he knows what happened to her where her body was
3: the key to it all this man patrick Aim. patrick befriended fonders and then contacted devries known for hidden camera work in holland he specially rigged a car with cameras over the next five months patrick posed as a gambling drug dealer who didn't care about the natalie holloway incident and just wanted urine as a partner and it worked Joran opened up, telling Patrick that he was with Natalie on the beach in Aruba when she died. But he says he didn't kill her. She was drunk, went into convulsions, and died in his arm.
0: So he just says this to his friend, or this guy. Mm-hmm. That he, and then later he says, oh no, none of that was true. I was trying to impress that guy. This is in 2008. He's caught an undercover video saying that basically it's not her, his fault that she died. She had a seizure, but he disposed of her body and then yeah. covered it up for years. Yes. So that's his 2008 statement first. Then later in 2008, he changes again. He says on an interview on the news that he So sold- the news is interviewing him. Yeah, he's getting interviews and things. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um he says later in 2008 that he actually sold Natalie into sexual slavery I remember in this Venezuela. One. Yeah. That I remember he sent this her one. on a boat in the night away from Aruba to go down to it's Venezuela. Awful. And to he got money both at the time for selling her and then later to keep quiet about it. So
1: now he's saying this, but then later he says, oh, no, that wasn't true either. So, okay. Ordinarily, I would be like, you know what? It's good. Keep him talking. Let's see right. what the truth is. But I feel like what we found with Jorn van der Sloot and probably why, you know, earlier on you asked me how I remember this case in Belgium And my answer was, I actually remember hearing his name more than her name, but then realizing that these people were tied together. I didn't really remember when Natalie Holloway went missing, but I do remember the Joran Van Der Sloot revelations. And I think the way that he taunted the media... Um, and the way that he disrespected the memory of Natalie Holloway and her family so overtly, so boldly through the media. And I do think that to a degree he was enabled by the media because you know how, you know production works. As a producer, you sort of vet certain things before someone goes on the air. I think one time, Joran pops off and says something crazy and harmful and absolutely abhorrent. Okay, you didn't know he was going to do that. That's fine. But at a certain point, I remember that sex slavery story that he was shilling out. And everyone like was picking it up. And I feel like that was very irresponsible media coverage the way that that was sort of covered and just any, he could have said anything and he knew that mm-hmm. and he knew he loves the attention. Yeah. Like he loves that media attention. And unfortunately times were different then. And I think that people were really slow to realize that. I think now it's not a shock to say that Joran Van Sloot is just an awful person who craves attention in the worst way at the expense of, um, a disappeared young woman and her family, her grieving family. But at the time it was more like, we have this maybe killer who wants to talk to us. Like we sh- we shouldn't say no to the airtime. I mean, that's, this is newsworthy. Right. And I really think that it was handled just absolutely irresponsibly. And I hope that it's, a it's something that media has learned from, you know? Yeah. you got away with murder. Why are you taunting us with this? What is wrong with you?
0: That's the crazy thing. Joran is saying all that stuff, and he probably did have something Mm -hmm. to do. That's the wild part. People make false allegations, or false confessions all the time Mm -hmm. in big profile cases, but this is totally different because it's not an unhinged allegation. He was with Natalie. He by all accounts, most likely had something to do with her disappearance and or death. And that's that's what's wild. It's like he can't stop. Mm. So the saga continues. (laughs) A couple years after the sexual slavery story, which from what everyone can tell, is not true, but Mm. that's one of the things that he said also. In March 2010, he extorts Natalie Holloway's mom. He says, if you pay me $250,000, I will tell you where Natalie's body is and I will tell you the circumstances of her death. It's awful. Yeah. And he got paid $25,000. So not the full amount because that was an advance. Um, and then her, her, Natalie Holloway's mom's lawyer went down to Aruba to meet with him to be like, is this legit? Mm-hmm. Cause she really wanted to know. Of That's course. the sad part. Like she was willing to do it yeah. to find out. And then he says, yeah, um, she's, she's buried in the foundation of my dad's house. And that was proven to not be true because records and, and plans and history show that the house was built years later. So he just kind of thought, oh, yeah, that's convenient. They'll never actually be able to find her in there if she's in the found they didn- They're not going to tear down the house, but it's convenient, but it doesn't match up. There's yeah. literally no way that's true. And then later he admits, yeah, it's not true. He emails the lawyer. Yeah, oh it wasn't true, but I just wanted to get back at the Holloways for messing up my life. Or I guess um, her mom's last name isn't Holloway. It's Twitty. But I wanted to get back at Natalie's family for messing up my life. So that's why I did this extortion scheme. It's awful. It's awful. It's unreal. It really just goes beyond what you can even fathom a human being could do. Mm -hmm. That's one of the last terrible things he does before May of 2010. Five years to the day that Natalie disappeared, he murders a woman, Stephanie Flores
2: it's a stunning break in the case. After five days in police custody, denying repeatedly that he killed Stephanie Flores, the young Dutchman broke down in admitting to murdering the 21-year-old Peruvian student in his hotel room after a night of drinking and gambling. (laughs) The bombshell confession came late last night. Under intense questioning, the 22 year old Uran reportedly told investigators that he attacked Stephanie Flores. He grabbed her by the neck when she took his laptop, he said, and started reading articles about him on the internet.
0: He is checked into a hotel there, and a couple days after he's supposed to check out, a cleaning member of the cleaning staff finds. A woman's body beaten to death and hit in the room.
1: Oh my gosh! Yeah,
0: in the room um, that was rented to his name, so he's not even really trying to hide it. So, was he, so he was immediately arrested. He was extradited. He had left at that point, and I haven't recalled the facts of the Stephanie Flores case as, as much as I researched the Natalie case, but there's a lot of eerie and tragic circumstances surrounding it. So it's five years to the day. That that's, Natalie,
1: that's very strange. Yeah,
0: that Natalie disappeared. And police say that she had searched, this woman, Stephanie, had searched on Yoren's laptop in the room for information about Natalie to see if there was something linking her to Yorin and if he had any information and he killed her. He says... That he left in a rage and he did a bunch of cocaine or something to be able to have the energy to drive and to leave. And he tried to escape and he was quickly, you know, targeted as this is the person that did this. Mm -hmm. And he was, he went back and forth. At first he said, oh yeah, I was there, but um, these burglars came into our room and I hid while they killed her.
1: Yeah, because he thinks he can get away with it again. I guess so. He, think- he has learned um, that if he just creates enough confusion that there's a chance that he could get away and that his uh, family will sort of be able to fund good legal representation and get him out of any kind of trouble. And yeah. so he doesn't feel like there are any consequences for his action. Yeah. That is crazy. The other thing about the f- that it was five years to the day of Natalie's disappearance is that, just like we talked about, he clearly paid attention to this case. He clearly paid attention to all the media coverage, and he loved getting um, attention as a result of Natalie's disappearance. So I am inclined to believe that that was not an accident, that he knew exactly what day it was when this happened. Wow, when he took her life, yeah. that—that's just that would just be my instinct.
0: Well, so he was brought to justice in this case, thank goodness, and he is now in a prison in Peru. And that's where that's where he's gonna be serving a life sentence. Sadly, no. What he's sentenced to twenty-eight years. Okay. So he's scheduled for release in I believe twenty thirty-eight which is not far enough away from my comfort.
1: <laughs> Definitely not.
0: Uh, Yeah. So that is the current
1: end of the tale of Joran Vandersloot. Has he issued any other statements from behind bars about Natalie Holloway? No. He's said nothing else? He's he said just... nothing
0: else. And in fact, they elected not to question him about Natalie when they were investigating the Stephanie Flores case, which I, I understand. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a totally separate case, even though the date and potentially she was looking for information on Natalie um, when he killed her mm-hmm. does link it in some way, but they're not directly linked in terms of the crime. So they, they announced that they were not going to be seeking information on that because it's a different jurisdiction, different crime. So we don't have anything new about Natalie from the Stephanie
1: Flores case. So what is your theory on what happened to Natalie Holloway?
0: I don't know. I, okay. well, I I have one vague theory, but I this is a case where I really, the reason I can't stop thinking about it is because I really don't know what I think happened to her. I don't think she's still living. Um, I think that's extremely unlikely. And the terrifying and tragic thing is if she were, then it's probably in the most horrible, unimaginable conditions because the only scenario in which I can imagine that she would be still living is if he was telling the truth about selling her into slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in that case, this was now 15 years ago, it's hard to imagine she would even still be alive in that type of condition. But I think my best guess, if I had to guess, is that I think that something that they were all doing that night, going to the beach, drinking, doing drugs. And I don't say this to cast any judgment on Natalie if she was doing drugs or if she was drinking alcohol. Of course, I'm not saying that she did anything to cause her own demise. But I think it's very possible that she did have some kind of – either she had alcohol poisoning or um she had a bad reaction to drugs and alcohol Uh, and died, and that Yorin panicked and got rid of her body. Mm -hmm. I've so basically, I think his second statement is closer to the truth. He was there when she
1: died. I don't buy that he just dropped her off somewhere. There's, yeah, I don't think there's any way. Yeah. But what about the two brothers? How do they factor in?
0: I think it's kind of a toss up if they were there or if they kind of just had helped, um, had helped Yorn earlier in the night with like driving them or something because I could see Yorn wanting to hook up with Natalie mm-hmm. and kind of saying, "Hey guys, like get lost. I'm I'm going to take this girl to the beach." And then something happened, and that is, or I guess it wasn't his second statement; it was his third statement in uh, 2008. So three years after the disappearance, that's when he said, oh yeah, we went to the beach to have sex. She had a seizure and she died and I panicked and dumped her body. I think, I'm not saying I think that like anything he's saying is the truth. I think it could very well all be lies, but that scenario makes more sense to me. And you'll notice in all of his scenarios, none of them actually involve him killing her.
1: Yeah, that is interesting.
0: Yeah. Like either he says that she died because of a seizure or something um, and then he got rid of her body or that he just dropped her off and doesn't know what happened or that he sold her into slavery, which you could consider ca- to be killing someone. But, you know, he didn't say, oh, yeah, I, I got really mad because she did something and I I flew into a rage and killed her. No, he never says that.
1: Well, I think he likes to protect himself in that way. And I think he likes to create stories, even in the second murder where he... Uh, says that there were robbers mm-hmm. that broke in or something like that. I think that he likes to spin stories that ab- absolve him of any sort of guilt. Um, and I think that's very telling of kind of how he sees himself fitting into the world. I think that he he really will never be able to see himself as the um the monster in these stories. Yeah. I think he has a really hard time doing that and being honest with himself Mm -hmm. and with others. I mean, and that's like at the most basic level. Right. And
0: yeah, to be clear, when I say I think maybe something happened to Natalie that had to do with drugs or alcohol, I I mean that I think he Mm. wasn't a cause of that. I think when they went to go hang out and they went to the beach, something happened, whether he gave her a drug, I'm not sure. But I think I think she probably died that night on the island and that that's kind of the end of Natalie's life. And then the rest has been this cover up of where her body is. And I mean, the only thing that makes sense is that he took her out to the ocean. I just feel like. Once – I mean, like I was saying about my my grandparent, I – I mean, he was lost at sea. Yeah. And that is kind of – yeah, I mean, things do turn up, but a lot of times they really don't in the ocean. So I think that makes the most sense on such a small island. But people have said theories about her being buried somewhere on the um, Vandersloot property. That's the other – I feel like those are the only two possible
1: were the Sloot properties searched later on?
0: They've been searched later. At, yes, I believe they have.
1: In true crime, what you learn, unfortunately, is that a lot of times the most obvious solution to the mystery is the solution. solution. And that's the that, that's the thing with, I think, Natalie Holloway's case as well. Um, and I, I think your theory lines up a lot. And it's certainly one that I've heard repeated before by other voices that I I trust yeah. um, who have researched this case.
0: Well, I was going to ask, do you, if you had to come up with one theory, would you have kind of the same idea? Or do you think maybe there was a different?
1: No, I think that's pretty much the same idea. I think mm-hmm. she was murdered on the beach. Um, I don't know whether or not it was an act of sort of rage or neglect mm-hmm. um, on the part of Joran Vandersloot. But I think that he was the inciting um, incident, I guess. Mm-hmm. He incited the incident of her death. He was yeah. the cause of her death. And I, I believe that without a shadow of a doubt. And I think that he also just got really lucky with the way that this case panned out, that he was not caught and that her body was not found. I use lucky in like a really dark, warped sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that there, if you believe in like parallel universes or whatever, I think there's absolutely a universe where her um, body did turn up or things like that. Like, it is just the probability Mm -hmm. and that tiny, tiny 69 and a half square mile island that that there was never any physical evidence is just beyond me. That is just so crazy.
0: Well, and think about it, if if what we both think happened, which is that she did die that night on the beach, if they had had forensics on the beaches, and I know there's disputes about, like, cadaver dogs and stuff, yeah. but I mean, that is evidence, and I don't even know if they have cadaver dogs on the island of Aruba or how, they, how fast they could get there, but I think that things like that could have made a big difference
1: time was lost yeah at the end i mean that time was lost you have 48 hours to really make headway in any um murder case in a homicide investigation those are the most important hours and those 48 hours her parents were on a plane the investigators were not that worried um because they didn't think that there was a a cause for major concern and so so much time unfortunately was lost and i think that was to the detriment of this case being handled well You mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about how the media handled this case, and I think that's kind of a good way of rounding out this discussion.
0: Yeah. So, Natalie's case is often cited as one of the most visible and prime examples of the the idea of missing white woman syndrome. If you haven't heard of this concept, it's the idea that when a white woman, especially a young woman, um, goes missing, think of Lacey Peterson, or Jamine Ramsey was a girl, not a woman, but um and, and Natalie Holloway, when they go missing, they get a lot more media attention than if people of color go missing or if men go missing or queer people, you know, different different types of people other than this poster child, the missing white woman, they just do not get as much media attention. And I think that's objectively true, but it's a very difficult topic to really tackle just Mm -hmm. because it's not about saying, oh, Natalie didn't deserve to get this attention or Natalie's case doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. No one's saying that. It's just you have to reconcile that with the fact that there are other women who went missing the same year Mm -hmm. as Natalie and maybe I can look up some of those cases and put them in the show notes Mm -hmm. if people are curious just for counter examples of other people that have disappeared and just did not receive the attention. And even there's other cases where it is still a white woman who goes missing who, for whatever reason, the story isn't picked up. And the media loves to not include stories if there's kind of a, quote, bad fact. So if somebody um, was suffering from a mental illness that might be presumed to play a role in their disappearance, it's like the story just won't even get picked up. Mm -hmm. So this idea is fascinating and really sad and i think it's gotten better since 2005 when natalie went, went missing but it's still not
1: good like it's yeah. this is this phenomena i think absolutely still exists and it's oh, yeah. it's kind of um it's difficult to recognize but i think it's very important to talk about that natalie benefited from being white even in her death Right. She benefited from white privilege just in the fact that she got that name recognition that the entire country was talking about her and where she was and everyone was looking for her. And they were allowed to sort of use that leverage, that privilege mm-hmm. to create pressure on the Aruba authorities to get justice mm-hmm. for Natalie. And of course, you have to think of the families of people who are not in that, you know, white upper middle class. I mean, her family's pretty wealthy. Right. Yeah, I think so. That so that sort of echelon um, in the United States right. that will never have that sort of privilege. Well, and not
0: just in media coverage, although that's what missing white woman syndrome refers to. But in terms of resources to find her, I mean, again, it's so sad that she never has been found, but I read something today that was fascinating, which is that 40% of the Aruban police budget that year went to finding Natalie. Oh my god! 40% of the total budget was poured into trying to find Natalie. And I do have to think, although I don't necessarily have a counterexample, um, but I do have to think that if a local woman from Aruba who's not white had gone missing, I don't know that 40% of the budget would have gone into finding her. But I think there was so much pressure because this was this beautiful young woman, as far as conventional standards go, whose Mm -hmm. face was plastered in every news story. And there was immense pressure to not only find her, but also just to make it
2: look like they were doing everything they could possibly do. Mm -hmm. The Natalie Holloway story just dominated. It was a sensation. It was also one in a string of stories that were grabbing headlines about... Missing, attractive young women. Women who all happen to be white.
3: Chandra Levy was last seen on April 30th. 27-year-old Lacey Peterson. Every night, there were shows looking at... What we called, you know, the missing white female, because they were almost always stories of missing or murdered young white women.
2: It was apparent to a lot of people that there was this obsession, almost to the exclusion of anyone else who might also have been missing.
3: These shows were bringing in huge ratings. By far, the largest was the story of Natalie Holloway.
1: And I think that something that we're learning with social media is that where the where the mainstream media will stop on stories, where the stories that they are not interested in, we all now have platforms of our own to raise attention and awareness to do better than these standards that have just been upheld by, um, mainstream media for so long. So I, I think of, um, cases that have gone viral because of a Twitter poster saying like, this is my cousin. My cousin has gone missing. Can we get some attention for this case? This is my neighbor. This is whoever it shouldn't be our burden. But I think that I always try and, I always try and look for, elements of hope, even in dark stories. And I think that that's something that I would want to inspire in a listener Mm -hmm. that like, yeah, the media is going to have this bias, this tilt towards missing white woman syndrome, and that shouldn't be the way that it is. But it then becomes on us to do better in how we share stories and how we bring justice to the least among us and paying attention to that on our news feeds, not scrolling past it. Um, And so that's something that I think is important and just something that we can all take action in in our day to day lives, being plugged into our communities, um, because unfortunately, heartbreaking, tragic mysteries and murders and deaths like this are not just happening uh, in your tabloid section of the grocery store. They're happening where we live, and it's on us to be paying attention and to hold authorities to account to do better.
0: Yeah. And I am definitely not saying that we suddenly need to swing to our news being completely dominated only by stories of people who are missing or have been murdered because it's a hard balance. You also, it's not really good for people's mental health to constantly focus on these stories. But I think the point is that when we do we need to recognize the humanity in everyone who needs help or who is missing or who to whom some tragedy has occurred.
1: Well, Lizzie, do you have any final thoughts on the Natalie Holloway case? How did you feel about doing Murder with Friends <laughs> from the comfort of your own guest room? Is it everything you would hoped it would be?
0: <laughs> it is. It's everything I hoped it would be and more. Although it is kind of weird to talk about true crime and be like, that was fun. I mean, it's it's not. It's sad. Um, but it's, yeah, I think Natalie's case will be something that I always think about. And it's been 15 years. I don't know that I have any particular um expectation or hope that we'll suddenly get answers but i think we also really do know who is to blame in this case already
1: yeah well thanks so much for listening to this very special murder with friends edition of under our roof we hope that you liked it and if you hated it but you still got this far don't worry the next episode will be dramatically different from this We hope that you're doing well wherever you are. Thanks for spending some time with us, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Under Our Roof. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Today's episode of Under Our Roof features audio from Manhunter, which was an ABC News special on the Natalie Holloway disappearance, as well as audio from another ABC special called Inside the Mind of a Killer. All these are available for free on YouTube.